great worship, Emily. Mark chapter 8, we left off verse 27. We won't be there long, but I'll read a few chapters because we're going to read this context uh, from Matthew. It, I think it adds a little bit more to it. But verse 27 says, Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? I want you to know that I don't know if it's as extreme as uh, they portray it today with the chosen, but Jesus was a laughable guy. I'm sure they had fun. I'm sure every time he went out with his disciples, they didn't, wasn't so intense. They were casting out demons or healing people. I'm sure they had a good time laughing with those 12 knuckleheads, so it it was probably fun to be around him. He, he was serious when he needed to be. He always thought about his father and the kingdom of God and what his mission was down here. And we're going to look at that a little bit tonight. But as they're walking along, having fun, shooting the breeze, he says he asked his disciples saying to them, who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. So you can turn or just listen to Matthew. I'm going to read his account of it, chapter 16, verses 13 through 14. So after Jesus asked them, he, they said, John the Baptist, uh, Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. This account is recorded all four times in the Gospels. So... It's there for a reason. I mentioned that because you had a hard time finding another place in the gospel that Peter actually gets it right. He doesn't put his foot in his mouth. He, he answers and he gets it right. For right now anyway, we'll find out he gets it wrong just as soon as he got it right. Peter is the guy. It's like being at work and you have guys, and you're joking, and you're ribbing, and you're saying, hey, we need a raise. Pete, why don't you go and ask the boss for a raise? And as Peter goes and asks, because that's how quick he can turn, he asks, and the next thing you know, he picking, he's picking up his coat and all, and they're asking him, Peter, where are you going? Well, I just got fired. <laughs> That's how quick Peter does not think, and he's all fired up. Well, the disciples, like I said, are walking with the Lord, and he brings up this question. And they're, once again, they're just walking, having a good time, enjoying the day. They're having fun. And Jesus says in verse 13, latter part of it, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, and they probably chuckled at that, knowing that John was already dead, but they're saying Jesus is John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Could you imagine that? They're having a good laugh with this. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, he said to them, 
but who do you say that I am? All of a sudden, the laughing and the joking stops. Jesus turns the question around on them. Who do you say that I am? And Peter pipes up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. That's his birth name, we know. But this is the key, for flesh and blood has not revealed it, revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And with those words, Jesus, he proceeds to change Peter's name. He says in verse 18, and I say to you that you are Peter. His name is Simon Simeon. His name gets changed to Peter at that moment. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. Peter stands for Petros, a little rock. Petra, he's going to use to build the church. The Petra is the rock. It's a word that refers to a mountain, but it's this large cliff that comes on the side of a mountain, protruding from the mountain. And Peter is called a little rock. You know, not a big, huge rock, something smaller. Jesus is going to build a church, and it's not the same word. He's going to build it on the Petra. So it's not appropriate to say Peter is the rock. A lot of people say that, but, he, but he's not. Because he could have said, Peter, and on you, I will build my church. But he doesn't say that. Or he might have said, you are Petros, and on Petros, I will build my church. But he didn't say that either. He uses a different word, a different root. But it's like he's part of it, but it's a bigger than him. It's bigger than Peter. So Peter is, you might say, a chip off the old block, a chip off the old rock. And that's literally. But the question is this evening, what's the block that he's a chip off of? We're still wondering what that block is. That's the, the chip we know is Peter. And when we look at this statement, it seems as though Jesus understands, of course, what the rock is. He's the one speaking it. It seems to assume that Peter understands, but when we read it, it's not entirely clear. A lot of people get confused on it. We would tend to think that, that well, if it's not Peter, we just trace back a little bit further. And we'll say, and some do say, maybe it's the confession that Peter made. You know, he says, you are the Messiah the son of the living God. So maybe it's the confession that Jesus is Messiah and the son of God is the rock. And so it's bigger than Peter because he's the one that made the confession. He's part of it. And so it's a rock of confession. And, pe and people say all the time, okay, if Peter's the rock, but there's a problem with that. Not because that's not the reason Peter is blessed. That's what I want to know. How is Peter blessed? And if it's not why he's blessed, then how is that he's the rock? Why was he blessed? He wasn't blessed because he made that confession. We can knock that down. But rather, Jesus says, 
you made that confession, but the reason you're blessed is where you got the information from. If we could ever get that part and understand that, when we go out to witness the burden is lift off of us, we can share uh, nicely. We don't have to go back and beat ourselves up. I should have said this. I should have said that. Because basically, it doesn't even come down to us. This was not revealed. Jesus says this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. If you told me this because flesh and blood has told you, you are, you're not blessed. If you're telling me this, going out and witnessing, because Pastor Victor told you or Pastor Jonathan told you, and that's as far as it got, Jesus says you're not blessed. When Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And they start rattling off what flesh and blood has told them. That's what Jesus, that's what the Holy Spirit is saying. What Jesus said, and they're having a good laugh at everybody. But what Peter says now, he says, because he got it by revelation of God. That's the key. God revealed to Simon that this man he's been following all of this time is the Messiah and is the son of God. Something he already suspected already knew that it was true, but it's not until it's revealed by the Father that it makes a difference. And now he's blessed. And so because the Father has revealed it, he's gotten it by revelation from the Father. He's blessed. His name is changed on this rock. He builds the church. So now the result is he's saved. Sandy Patty, many years ago, theologically sound in her song, she says, on this rock of revelation, build a sure and tried foundation. Peter is blessed because the Lord spoke to him and revealed to him who he was. It wasn't because flesh and blood told him. That doesn't get it. That's why I'm saying if you witness, all you can do is sow seeds. But you're not going to get it until the Lord reveals himself to you. And then it says, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now we can turn back to Mark chapter 8, verse 30. It says, then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them. That's interesting that it, all of a sudden he says he begins to instruct them and teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, that's strange for them. They, they're having a hard time with this, this. They just said, Jesus, you're the Messiah, he knows that they're expecting the Messiah to come and overthrow the Roman government and get the tyranny off their backs and set up his kingdom so that every Jew can sit beneath the vine and the fig tree. These are contradictory statements Jesus is making. That's why he's saying don't tell anyone, any man, that I'm the Messiah. Now, why would he say that? Because you're going to tell them 
I'm the wrong Messiah. I'm not the one you're, you were waiting for. You're not going to describe the Messiah that I am to the crowds, but I've come. And he said, the son of man, notice in verse 31, and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things. Necessity, that's why he comes. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I don't know if Peter's expecting to hear, blessed are you, son of Jonah, again, but he's not going to get that this time. But when he had turned around, he's, it seems as if he's walking, Peter is walking ahead with Jesus, and he turns around to the rest of his boys and looked at his disciples he rebuked Peter. And this is an interesting picture because Peter starts to rebuke him genuinely. He, Peter thinks he's doing the right thing sincerely. No doubt Peter loves Jesus. And he starts to speak and he's speaking openly to him. Jesus is letting him know, hey, I have to go to the Jerusalem. I have to get beaten and ill-treated and I must die for the sins of the world and so forth and all that. Peter blows a gasket. He can't take it. He's all upset, and he starts to rebuke Jesus. Now, what Jesus does, once again, he turns around to the rest of the disciples. Uh, Peter is at his back, and he speaks to Peter again, and he says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful. The King James says, You're, you don't savor us. You don't taste. You taste things of the world. That's, that's, that's your sweet, sweetness, the things of the world, the things that's opposite of the Lord. That's why he says, you don't savor us. You're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. He knows that Peter is not Satan, but he understands at that moment who is there inspiring Peter. He understands where the inspiration of that comes from because when he, had, when he was tempted in the wilderness, it was the same test again. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 9, it says, and he said to him, speaking of Satan, all these things I will give you, Satan speaking, if you will fall down and worship me. So he basically said there, you can skip the cross. You can be Lord. You can be the sovereign without doing God's will. And he said, Jesus reproves Satan also. He understands where this inspiration is coming from. And he turns his back to Peter and looks after the rest of the disciples. And he says, get behind me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man, of men avoiding the cross, avoiding God's plan for your life, avoiding the very thing you're called for. You're not mindful of the things of God. Verse 34, when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever, I want you to notice this, whoever, he says, speaking to us, to all of us, whoever will come after me, desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Follow in line along with me, walk with me, and take up his cross and follow me. 
Jesus is saying, in other words, if we're really going to follow him, and he's not just going to be our savior, not just going to be fire insurance, he's going to be our Lord, we have to understand there's not room for two people on the throne. We may struggle working out the rest of this all our lives, but there has to be an agreement with the Lord about this. He says, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. He's going to be Lord of our life. He has to be. We have to be completely in agreement with him. Lord, I need to deny myself. That's what we all need to do. I need to get myself out of the way. John the Baptist said this, I must decrease, but he must increase. Lord, I need to do the same thing. So to deny self, he says here, and that's a once, a one-time doing in his, in his saying that, in determining that, but it's a lifetime process. It's continually denying yourself. It's something that we have to do. Then continually taking up our cross. You know, we in the West, we like to glamorize the cross. We have the necklace with the cross, the bracelet with the cross. We have the cross behind me, but the cross was used for non-Roman citizens. If you were a citizen, you got your head chopped off, which would be quicker. That makes it better. Then hanging on a cross. I think the longest death it took on a cross was three days. The quickest death, Jesus broke the record. But before Jesus, it was like a day and a half. It was no different. It would be like wearing a electric chair. I've never seen a, anybody wear an electric chair for a, a little locket or a necklace or anything, or the gas chamber, or a needle now these days. They make it as gentle as possible, but they didn't do it back in these days. It was the cross. It was a means of execution. And I don't know about you, but I execute myself on the cross every day. That's what Jesus is calling us to. I had to execute myself uh, yesterday evening, wanting to do something. I couldn't do it. And we have to die to self. Jesus is saying, if we're going to follow him, we must die daily, constantly. We should do that. He says, take up our cross and constantly be following me. That's not Jesus' cross. He's already carried his. Our will will never be that we should carry another person's cross. I hear people say, oh, my cross to bear is taking care of my mother-in-law. Or my cross to bear is my kids staying in the house forever. But it's not that. Our cross is denying self. Whatever you enjoy doing the most, if it's interfering 
with the Lord. Jesus says, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. He says, mindful of the things of God, that's the problem. But the things of man, that's what you're mindful of. That's what he's talking about here. In verse 35, he says, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, notice, for my sake and the gospel will save it. The same shall save it. One translation says, we'll find it. If you lose your life, you'll find it. That's the God I know. People say all the time, I feel like I'm losing it. I feel like I'm, I, I'm doing so many things. I, I just feel at the wit's end, I'm losing it. Well, that's good because Jesus said we must lose our lives. I wish I, I'm not going to be able to think of it. It's a slogan. Maybe I will. I hear people say all the time, is it God, family, and country? Is that what people say? Isn't that the way they, they it usually write? Yeah. God knows none of that. Because if we're serving the Lord Jesus Christ, everything else will be in its rightful place. I enjoy my family. I enjoy my friends. I enjoy my grandchildren. I enjoy when Alabama is winning in football. <laughs> but I'm not out of touch with the world. I mean, I'm a human being also. And I thank God for his blessings every day. As the scripture says, he loads me down daily with benefits. But my anchor and my hope, my longing should be in the kingdom of heaven. It's there where there's no more tears and no more sorrows, no more sickness, no more disease. I'll get to be 30 years of age again, the perfect age. I can't wait. He says in verse 35, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. And here's the point. For what will it profit a man if he gains the entire cosmos and loses his own soul? Napoleon tried that. Hitler tried that. And the Antichrist will try that. You have more, we have more value than the whole created world. Jesus values our soul that much because all of that other stuff is going to be rolled up like a garment, done away with, but our soul is eternal. You're gonna live forever. His presence, or if you're not saved here this evening, you'll spend an eternity in hell, separated from the one you could have given your life to. That's why Jesus is so adamant. He's, he, he says this little parable many of times in the gospel. Verse 37, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Remember that rich man with Lazarus, what his plea was? Luke chapter 16, verse 24 through 26, this is what he said. After he opens his eyes, 
in hell. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham says, son, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good, good things. And likewise, Lazarus, notice what Lazarus, Lazarus received here on earth, evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this between us and you, there is a great gulf, a great chasm fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to you. That's sobering. That's the way it is. Verse 38, Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, Jesus says, everything that the world does, and I'm sure it was doing a lot of things, the climate of the world, was it was a lot of immorality and everything going on back then. Imagine it today. And Jesus said, you're, go you're going to be ashamed of me in this sinful generation of him, the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. He just said, now, remember, the Son of Man must suffer many things, must be rejected of the elders and the chief priests, killed, and after three days, rise again. Here he says, in verse, the latter part of 38, when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus has his view on the finish line. That's what we must have our view on. It's easy to get caught up here, but we need to have our view on the finish line. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here, chapter 9, because there's no chapter break, who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. He's talking about, of course, his transfiguration. He's not saying these guys won't die till I return. That's not what he's saying. He's, he says in verse 2, now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his three boys, and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. They said Mount Hermon is about 11,000 feet high. I don't think they climbed all the way up the mountain. They say on a summer's day, on a clear day, you can see snow on the top of it. Jesus took the disciples, took these three with him. I wonder what kind of conversations they were having. How long did they walk up the mountain? I doubt they went all the way to the peak, like I said. What conversations were, were they having about the things he had just spoken of? He says in verse 2, now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. One of the gospels, I think it's Luke, tells us that they fell asleep. These boys knew the key. When Jesus speaks, we fall asleep. They did it just about every time. And it says, while they were sleeping, he was transfigured before them. We get the word metamorphosis. It's the opposite of masquerade. It's the opposite 
of hypocrisy. To masquerade or to be a hypocrite is to put something on the outside that's not really on the inside so that you appear to be something that you're not. Metamorphosis is being changed from the inside out. And what's really on the inside is being expressed outwardly. Like when a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, goes into the cocoon and comes out, you know that's what was within it all the time. It says his clothes became shiny, exceedingly white. It tells us like the sun. He's glistening like light. I don't know if he used whisk or tide, but he used something. It's just him. It says, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. But the interesting thing is, what's shining forth from within him has even changed his clothes. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, how did these guys know who these two men were? That's the question. It seems they were sleeping, I think Dr. Luke says, and when they woke up and saw the conversation or heard the conversation going on, they automatically knew that was Elijah and that was Moses. And I'm sure they didn't have a name tag, a big name tag on. First Corinthians shines a little light on it. 13:12 says this, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face when we get to the kingdom. I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. Lydia asks me all the time, I wonder, will you know me in heaven? And I'll tease and I said, no, I, don't, I won't know you. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not going to know you. <laughs> you're, you're probably not going to want to know me because your mansion would be so much larger than mine. But of course we'll know one another. They look up and immediately recognize Elijah and Moses tells us they're speaking with Jesus of the decease he's about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, that sounds like he's speaking of death, and it doesn't seem or sound like it's an accomplishment. The Greek is exodus. He's speaking of his exodus that he's going to accomplish in Jerusalem. He would lead captivity captives like 1 Corinthians 15, 55 says, Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? He would have victory over hell and death after his resurrection, the devil and the grave after his his resurrection. And he would lead not captives itself. He's going to do what Moses never could do. He's going to do what Elijah could never do. Elijah had reforms but they would always fall back to the same old ways. Jesus is about to accomplish the exodus. Neither of them had actually finished or accomplished it when both of them died. Well, we know Elijah didn't die. He was carried away on a chariot. Jesus said when he hung on the cross before he died, tetelestai, it is finished. The work was secure. It was done. 
before he gave up the ghost. And he was talking about the exodus or the decease. Luke says he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Verse 5, then Peter, Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Let's just stay here and chill out forever. One of those mountaintops, an extreme, the best mountaintop experience. They just want to stay there forever. Because he did not know what to say. For they were greatly afraid. That's the holiness of the Godhead. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. You see the Trinity involved right there. It says, suddenly when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus. Isn't that that a book called that, only Jesus? Yeah, yeah, y'all should know that, a great book. Read it, a great book. Verse 9, now as they came down from the mountain, this was about a year into his ministry. They had went fishing with Jesus. They had seen him heal people. These, these are the, his closest brothers. They would never look at Jesus the same again. They had, oh, he's just an itinerant rabbi. We were getting common. He was getting common to us. They didn't have to worry about that anymore. As he's walking back down Mount Hermon, they're gazing at him, wondering, this guy is special. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen. Notice what he says. Till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. You don't catch it in the Greek. The word is eknekron, and it means out from among the dead. And that twisted them. That, that got them saying, what is he talking about? This out from among the dead. Verse 10 says, so they kept this word to themselves. Here it is, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. Now, it's because the Jewish people believed in a general resurrection. Daniel chapter 12, which we'll be looking at in, in home groups, Isaiah 26. Matter of fact, even the book of Job, Job 19, talks about the resurrection from the dead. They believe the just and the unjust are all raised together. Jesus says, no, 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 no. My sanctified ones will not be raised with the unjust ones. They believe in a general resurrection in the Old Testament. Jesus here says, don't say anything, speaking to uh, Peter, James, and John, to the, to, till the Son of Man, until he be risen out from among the dead. And now they're questioning, scratching their, their heads. What does this mean, rising out from among the dead? Christ, there's been plenty, I wouldn't say plenty, 
But there's some in the scriptures that has died, come back to life, but they die again. First Corinthians calls Jesus the first fruit because he dies and he will never die again. So he's the church's first fruit. We're going to have... We're going to have to ask Matthew about what happens when Jesus is resurrected and those people break open their graves and walk around. I don't know what to do with them. I've got to ask Jesus about that. Then we have the church, part of the first resurrection. The church is at the rapture. We have those two prophets, part of the first resurrection. And no doubt we have the Old Testament saints. The Old Testament saints will not be resurrected on this earth. They will be resurrected in the millennial kingdom, but they are still a part of the first resurrection. The first resurrection, once again, is a resurrection into life, and it's a category. It's not an event. The second resurrection, if you find yourself in the second resurrection, <laughs> you're doomed is a resurrection to damnation. And we see that certainly at the great white throne. But there is the rising out from among the dead. That's what Jesus has just spoken to these three men. That's why they were scratching their heads. That's why they couldn't understand it. That's why Jesus didn't want them to go out and tell them what he had just said because they would mess it up. And they didn't even know what he was saying. And it's a resurrection between the just and the unjust. The resurrection unto life and the resurrection unto death. So they're hearing this. It will be developed, of course, in the New Testament, but it's brand new to these guys. Verse 10 says, so they kept this word to themselves. They obeyed, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. Verse 11 And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, and it is written of him. We'll stop right there tonight. Uh, Any questions, any comments before I pray and close? Jesus tells these three men something that blew them away. Because just like I said, they all thought that it was just one resurrection. So he's explaining, no, it's a category, not an event. It's a resurrection of the holy ones, of the righteous one, and then the resurrection to damnation. That's the big of God in all his ways and all the way he works. He always separates the wheat from the chaff. He always separates the lambs from the the wolves and the goats and all these things. He will not allow his holy ones to be involved in a resurrection with those that are headed for damnation. And that's what Jesus had told them. That's why they were questioning him over and over and over again. What does he mean about this out from among the dead? 
So they was confused with that. Let's pray. Father, you are a good God. You are acquainted with our ways. Lord, I pray that we would catch hold of your garment and not let go. I pray that we would serve you with a full heart. That we would give to you as much as you've given to us. And that's our lives. That we would let nothing, the glitter or the glam, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Lord, may we keep that in our hearts. May it increase in us to live holy lives, to see you one day, and to hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. And I ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen.